Father, thank you so much for the privilege that we have to worship you and praise you and sing and uh, declare your word. And I pray as we come to your word right now that you would just bless this time, that you would use it greatly. We know that you use your word to grow us in respect to salvation and a wonderful relationship with you. And I, I pray that's exactly what would happen today. Use this passage, Lord God, to help us uh, understand your tremendous love for us and how it was manifest in sending your son Jesus to die for us. We thank you for this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what would you do if you could choose your own family? Think about it. If you could choose your family, your earthly family, what would you do? Some people would say, hey, you know, I actually like my earthly family wonderfully, and I'm fine with that. Some would say, boy, I would choose another earthly family in a second. The reality is that uh, we don't choose our earthly family, but we do have an opportunity to choose our heavenly family. You see, we all come into this world as those who are in the domain of darkness. We are in, we are in Satan's domain, and yet, as we're going to see today, the Lord graciously, through salvation, gives us an opportunity to enter into a new family, a new family. We're going to see today who we are spiritually related to. And so would you turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12? And we're going to be looking at verses 46 to 50. And we are in our break between books. And I so appreciate those who are giving me suggestions for what to study next. Um, I've been studying Ecclesiastes. That's one of them I've been looking at quite uh, in depth. So be praying some other books that uh, looking at, but being drawn towards Ecclesiastes. And so, you know, the Lord is a is a gracious God who wants to make us know for certain that this life is not vanity, but it's a vapor. It's quick. Therefore, we need to uh, recognize everything we do will be judged by Him and enjoy that life that he has given us in the context of obedience and fear of the Lord. So we might do that. We'll see. Pray for that. So studying that's a wonderful study. encourage you to read through it. It's, it's a difficult book, but if, as you go to it, go to the very end, because uh, that will help you understand the whole book. Okay? But with that in mind, turn to Matthew chapter 12, and we are looking at verses 46 to 50. And the context of the book of Matthew is Matthew is about the Messiah King, about King Jesus, Jesus Christ. It is about God the Son who took on human flesh to save his people from their sins. You see, Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords, and he came to his own, the Jewish people. Those who would name his name, and yet the Jews were in sin, they were sitting in darkness, and Jesus, after having the way graciously prepared through John the Baptist, uh, then began to call upon the people also to repent and believe in him because the kingdom was at hand. And we see that he taught and preached the kingdom, chapters 5 through 7. And he affirmed his teaching with the miraculous, chapters 8 and 9. He, pl- he proclaimed repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And, he aff- and that was affirmed again with the con- in the context of the miraculous. And then we see in chapter 10 that he sent his disciples out and he instructed them and he put them out in the midst of the multitudes, a multitude of lost souls. Then in chapters 11 and 12, coming up to where we're going to be, we see the outright rejection of King Jesus and the opposition begin to build against him. 
Indeed, in chapter 11, Jesus compared the present generation uh, to those who, uh, those who had rejected his forerunners, uh, uh, John the Baptist, and had rejected him personally. He compared them to spoiled children who get upset when other children won't play the games they want to play. And we see his brutal condemnation of the unrepentant cities, those cities who would experience a stricter judgment even than Sodom and Gomorrah because they had rejected Christ who was in their midst. And then on the heels of Jesus' condemnation of, of these, uh, these cities, we see in chapter 12 the Pharisees beginning to try to set him up, to set him up so they can trap him to set him up there specifically as a Sabbath breaker, they were planning and plotting to destroy him. And yet he made it clear that they had committed the unpardonable sin. They had spoken against the clear conviction of the Holy Spirit. Uh, they had the sin which is unforgivable. Indeed, they saw the miraculous signs that Christ had performed, delivering a demoniac who was dumb and blind, casting out demons, giving him sight and speech. And they had attributed the miraculous affirming, attesting those miracles to Satan rather than to the Holy Spirit. And Jesus made it clear that sin was unforgivable. It was unforgivable. They had crossed the line in which they had rejected the conviction of the Spirit in the context of the miraculous concerning the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus called the Pharisees what they really were. They were a brood of vipers. They were evil. They were the offspring of deadly, venomous, spiritual snakes in a sense. And Jesus made it clear that by their words, they appeared righteous and good. And the crowds uh, heard that, but they were actually really wicked. And by those words, which evidenced their hearts, they would be condemned. And that because their hearts were wicked and out of the abundance of that, they had spoken. And then we see Jesus moving to the generation, an evil and adulterous generation, uh, who sought another sign rather than the person of Christ who was in their midst, he had already validated many signs and wonders and, and validated the truth of his word, but they wanted more signs and wonders. They were adulterous. They were an adulterous generation. They were not only evil, they were adulterous. Instead of turning and trusting in the living God who was in their midst, they continued in their religiousness. They were spiritually adulterous. And then since Jesus is greater than Jonah and Solomon, and thus this evil adulterous generation was displaying its great culpability in judgment, and their judgment would be great. And then right before our passage, we have an interesting portion, which I will read, in which we have a terrifying illustration concerning the demoniac and this evil generation, where their last state is worse than their first because they cleaned themselves up religiously apart from Christ, and this only leaves them in a much worse eternal state. And this leads us into the passage in which we're looking today. So again, turn to Matthew chapter 12. And we're going to, and we're going to start at verse 43. Verse 43. Now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, and it does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. Then it goes out and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go and live there, and the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will be with this evil generation. 
Now, Jesus is speaking this right now, condemning them because they had rejected him and saying how much worse they are because they had spiritually cleaned themselves up. And in the midst of this, he gets interrupted. And that's our passage. While he was still speaking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and his brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. And someone said to him, behold, <coughs> excuse me. Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But he answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. And so here, the Lord Jesus is giving an illustration concerning the present generation who had cleaned themselves up religiously. And in the midst of that, he is, he is interrupted by his family. And that's where we come to our passage. You see, this generation, they had thought that they were righteous. They had thought that they were, they were right before the Lord. They were self-righteous. And the Lord God had made it clear how dangerous it is to clean yourself up religiously apart from trusting in Jesus Christ. Indeed, we see this. Let me illustrate this uh, context in which Jesus is sharing what he shares. Turn to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, verse 9. And he also told this parable to certain ones who trusted in themselves that they were, what, righteous. And viewed others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and one a tax gatherer. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus to himself, God, I thank thee that I am not like other people, other people, swindlers, unjust, uh, adulterers, and even like this tax gatherer. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax gatherer, standing some distance away, was unwilling even to lift his eyes to heaven, but he was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, the man, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, but he who humbles himself shall be exalted. And this is the context of the Lord's uh, judgment or sharing his, his, his declaration of their coming judgment because they had cleaned themselves up and they had not trusted in him. And therefore, their eternal judgment was much worse. And in the middle of this discussion, as he is condemning this evil generation, something happens. Notice we see his family's misguided concern. While he was still speaking to the multitudes, and that was the context in which he was speaking, his mother and his brothers were standing, this is verse 46, standing outside seeking to speak to him. And someone said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. So Jesus is evidently inside a house speaking to the multitudes here in Matthew. And, and Matthew, inspired by the Spirit, says, Behold, take a look. His mother and his brothers are standing outside to speak to him. Now, this is speaking of Jesus' human family. You see, Jesus was born of a virgin. 
his mother Mary. He was brought into the human race as was every single one of us, but yet without sin. You see, Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. And he did then have uh, brothers and sisters. You see, God became a man. Mary was the human mother of the Son of God. Matthew chapter 1, verse 20. But when he had considered this, this is Joseph, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his, call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. Contrary to the Roman Catholic hellish doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary, uh, the evil twisting of the word of God, Mary had other sons and daughters after Jesus, the son of God, was born. She had other sons and daughters. Jesus had brothers and sisters, and we see this indeed in other passages. Look up in Matthew 13 a little bit. Matthew 13. Now, the, the, the Catholics, in their wickedness, try to do all kinds of gymnastics, saying, oh, these are just cousins. They're, that's not what the Scripture says. It's not what the Scripture says. Matthew 13:54. In coming to his own town, he began teaching them in their synagogues, so they became, ast- and so they became, that they became astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? There you go, right? Uh, and his sisters, are they all not with us? Where, where then did this man get, get all these things? And then they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. So Jesus is in the middle of confronting the multitudes after confronting the Pharisees. And his family shows up. His family shows up. Now, it's uh, not apparent in Matthew why they want to speak to him. But in the book of Luke, or in the book of Mark, excuse me, it does become more clear why they are wanting to speak to him. Turn to Mark chapter 3. You see, I believe we're going to see that Jesus' mother and brothers wanted to speak to him, most likely to take him away because they thought he was out of his mind and possibly in danger. They had misunderstood things. Look at Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3, verse 20. And he came home, and the multitude gathered again to such an extent that he could not even eat a meal. And when his own people, now notice this word, his own people heard this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying he has lost his senses. Now this term translated his own people, hoi par atu, is basically a Hebrew idiom to speak of one's relatives. One's relatives, his family. His family was thinking he's out of his senses. And they were looking to hear what it says, to take custody of him, to take custody of him. These were his kinfolks, his kinsmen. And indeed, in the same thing, just a few verses later on, in Mark chapter 3.31, we have his mother and his brothers arriving. We have the exact same situation here. And then we have the same account of the story, the true story that we have in the book of Matthew. 
And so I believe with what we have in the book of Mark, his relatives think he's lost his mind and they're attempting to take custody of him. And you know why? Because they, apart from Marius, we'll see, they did not believe at this point. His brothers were not believers. We see this in Mark 3.21, they were going to take custody of him, literally. And then in John 7.5, it says, for not even his brothers were believing in him. They had not believed in him yet. And so you can imagine the scene here. You've got Jesus challenging the Pharisees are out to kill him. He's offending the multitudes. And now his family, I believe, led by his unbelieving brothers, are thinking he's out of his mind. He's going he's gonna to get himself killed. Let's get out there. Let's take custody of him. Or, or possibly they're on a mission to deliver Jesus from himself, from their perspective, okay? Now, this has caused some to speculate that Mary did not believe at this point, but I don't believe that at all. We have the truth that Mary did believe. Very clearly, Luke chapter 1, Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. Mary believed. But Mary must have been caught up in the concern. Now, we don't see anything about Joseph at this point. It's, it's speculated that since he's not spoken of anymore after this, that maybe or before this, that maybe he had already passed away. But here, it's apparent that Mary, that Mary is caught up with the brothers and them wanting to help Jesus out to deliver him. Now, at this point, these brothers and Mary are on a rescue mission. Now, I do want to make the point that it is evident that Jesus' brothers did not believe, but they eventually did come to faith. They did come to faith. Acts chapter 1, verse 14 these were all with mind, continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women, Mary the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. They came to faith. They came to faith. And indeed, James, his half-brother, he's called the Lord's brother in Galatians chapter 1, 19, the leader of the early church, the writer of the epistle James. And in Jude, we have, that's his other half-brother, Judas. Okay, not the bad Judas, but a good Judas, right? Jude. And so they did come to faith. But at this point, they were not believing, and they were trying to deliver Jesus from his circumstances that he had created. He had basically created, in a sense, by his condemnation, a very hostile situation. The Pharisees were wanting to destroy him, chapter 12. And they were probably trying to say, let's get him out of there before he gets himself killed. Now, we know that they didn't believe. And we know that what Jesus did was perfectly just right and God's perfect will. So while he was still speaking to the multitudes, behold, mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. And then now there's someone who relays the message. Look at verse 47. And someone said to him, behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside to speak to you. Now, this could be kind of embarrassing. In the middle of the company, this is always happens, by the way, when you're sharing the word of God to somebody, and it's maybe has a very serious situation, somebody who seems to claim to be a believer is not a believer, comes up and interrupts the situation, right? We see that happen all the time. Here we have it happening here. Someone said, your mother and your brothers are standing outside to speak to you. This could be kind of embarrassing. He's condemning this evil and adulterous generation, and someone says, mommy and your brothers want to speak to you, right? You know, could be embarrassing. But the Lord Jesus being God in human flesh, graciously responds. Notice what he says here. 
Behold, you're before. Someone said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But in contrast to that request, what does Jesus do? But verse 48, he answered the one who was telling him and said, he didn't denounce this to everyone. He answered the one who was telling him. He was just sharing to this one who was telling him this. And it's important to see that because the Lord Jesus not always declared everything to everyone. At this point, he was starting to hide truth at a point from them. He was condemning the multitudes, condemning those who had rejected him. He was turning away from that, but he was beginning to teach those around him. So he tells the one who was standing near him and said, Who are my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. Tremendous situation. Tremendous situation. In contrast to his earthly family seeking him, he says here is a higher level family. This is a more important family, a spiritual family. And so, excuse me, and so he says, who are my, he says, stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Behold, take a look, my mother and my brothers. So here Jesus begins with the rhetorical question, who are my mother and my brothers? And then obviously stretched out his hand to his disciples and pointed to them. Now in pointing to his disciples, those are most likely the 12. Now there were many other disciples, but Jesus, in the context of prayer, we see he prayed all night, six, Luke 6, 12 to 15, chose the twelve, one being one he knew who would betray him. Now, disciples are those who place themselves under the authority of another to be taught and thus learn. It means a learner. And in here it speaks of religiously, putting themselves under someone to be taught and learn. And indeed, what did Jesus share in Matthew 28? Go therefore and make disciples. How does that done? Two ways, two things, baptizing, confirming they're saved. First of all, don't, don't disciple somebody that's not saved. The confirmation of their outward testimony that they've been saved. And then teaching them, he says here, to do all that, he says here, to do, to, to observe all that I've commanded you. Teaching them to obey the word of God. That's what a disciple is, someone who learns to obey their master, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus is our teacher. So then it's one who has placed themselves under the authority of, uh, of his authority to learn and obey. And I believe he's pointing to his 12 disciples here at this point, barring uh, one he knew was a traitor. Now here in our context here, the Lord Jesus is very gracious to give us a lesson on the true value of the family structure uh, in the context of the family of God. He says, but he answered him, the one who was telling him, who is my mother and my brothers, and stretching out his hand towards his disciples, behold, my mother and my brothers. You see, very clearly, the Lord Jesus is teaching that there is another family, a greater family, a higher family than our earthly family. Now, he's not going to demean our earthly families. He's not going to demean his mother either. He's going to perfectly honor his mother. He's going to perfectly love his family. But there is a reality. There is a higher relationship. It is the family of God. Now, Jesus is not being disrespectful or anything like that uh, at all in ignoring them initially here. 
He is absolutely right in what he is doing, and everything he did was completely righteous. Indeed, we see later on the Lord's graciousness towards his mother uh, when he's even on the cross suffering. Uh, John chapter 19, verse 25. Therefore the soldiers did these things, but there was... But there were standing by the cross, but there were standing by the cross of Jesus, his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleopas and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. You see, Lord Jesus took care of his earthly family, but there is a relationship that goes beyond that. That goes beyond that. It goes way beyond that. So he's not disrespecting. But on a side note, we need to be very careful because our earthly relationship, although we have a relationship with our family and we love them and we are not to treat them badly in light of our heavenly family. We're not to, we're not to treat badly. We're to treat them in a, in a wonderfully loving way in which God would share through his word how we would treat our parents, how we would treat our, those around us. But the Lord Jesus made it clear that you've got to get your priorities right. You've got to get your priorities right, that certain families are not more important than him, that our earthly family. Look back in Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. He's going to make it clear. And he's not putting down the earthly family. He's putting in, in into perspective, the right perspective, so that we would see things rightly. Matthew chapter 10, turn there. <laughs> Matthew 10, verse 34. excuse me, do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He's not saying you don't love your children. He's saying if you love them more than you love me, you're not worthy of me. We should love our God and creator and savior more than anything else. And here he said, hey, I didn't come to bring peace. My coming would be a dividing line. It would show who is who. It would bring the divide. Those who are his would be in opposition to those who are not. And that would be seen very clearly in the physical family. Now, many of us are blessed to have physical families who are saved. But not everyone in our physical families are saved. And there's going to be a dividing line. It doesn't mean that we treat them badly. We love them. We care for them. But yet, we recognize there is a higher family. There is a higher relationship. So he points to his disciples, those in whom he had chosen, who had placed themselves under his spiritual authority to learn to obey, stretching out his hand towards his disciples. He said, behold, my mother and my brother, these are my relatives. These are who I am related to. And it's a very important point that he shares. Now, how can this be? How can his disciples be his relatives when they are not blood relatives? Well, the reality is here, we have an explanation. Look at our passage. And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Behold my mother and brothers. And then he says, For. He's going to explain what he means by how these disciples could be his relatives. How is it that they could be his relatives above, in a sense, 
his earthly family. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is a profound and wonderful statement. And we have a description of who is truly related to the living God, who is truly in his family. This describes who it is right from the lips of God in human flesh. Whoever does the will of my father who is in heaven, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. You see, this points to who is truly in the family of God. And as we're going to see in a moment, it has to do with obedience to the word of God. It has to do with obedience to the word of God. Because doing his will and that are synonymous, as we will say. You see, scripture reveals there are, although there are many earthly families, there are only two spiritual families, and there are only two eternal destinies. And folks, the spiritual family that you are in is determines the destiny in which you will be for eternity. You see, you are either of God's spiritual family or by default as a human being, a sinner, you are of the devil's family. You see, every human being begins this life in the domain of darkness because of sin. And we are thus, uh, we are thus of Satan in that sense. We'll see this in John 8. Whether you understand it or not, everyone begins this life in Satan's domain because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Each one of us has sinned. We are sinful by nature and by action. And we are thus children of the devil. It's hard to say, but it is. It's true. Turn to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. But see, God is so gracious. He, he, he doesn't leave anyone there if they are willing to humble themselves and be saved. There's no excuse. You can't say, oh, how can I start out as that? How, why would God let me do that? No, God had a solution from the beginning. And that was his son, Jesus. John chapter 8, 31. Jesus was therefore saying to the Jews who had believed in him, by the way, if you ever do a theology of believing in the book of John, it's quite interesting. There's a lot of people in John who believe that didn't believe. They had an outward faith in a sense, but you'll see by their actions, they really didn't have a faith in Jesus. We'll see the example here. Jesus therefore was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples. Then you shall know the truth, the truth shall make you free. Then they answered him, these are those who had supposedly believed, right? We are Abraham's offspring. We have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it you say you shall become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. And the slave does not remain in the house forever. Hey, you're a slave of sin. You may be in God's household being an Israelite, but you're not going to reign there forever. He's, he's telling them that. He says here, um, and said, the son does remain forever. Uh, if therefore the son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. I know you are Abraham's offspring, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. Well, I thought they believed. Well, no, the word does no place in them, right? I speak these things which I have seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you have heard from your father. This, the answer to him said, Abraham is our father. The, I, this, he's, he's our spiritual origin, they're saying. But Jesus says to them, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. What were the deeds of Abraham? Faith. He believed God, and then he acted upon that faith. He believed it was reckoned to him as righteousness, right? And so he says here, but as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, 
which I heard from God, this Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. And here's their spiritual origin. They said to him, we are not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come forth from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks lie, now he doesn't lie all the time, but whenever he speaks a lie, it says here, uh, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. You see, the reality is, if you have not trusted in Jesus Christ uh, for salvation from your sins, then you are still in the domain of darkness. And your spiritual family is that of Satan. But the tremendous reality is that God loved us so much that he sent his son to die for our sins. And if we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are transferred out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son. Turn to 1 John chapter 3. We had it. We had a part of the chapter 2 read earlier. 1 John 3. 1 John 3 verse 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. Behold what manner of love, right? See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God, and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when he appears we shall be like him, because we shall see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Everyone who practices sin... Practice also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. The reality is when we trust in Jesus Christ, we are delivered from Satan's domain. Listen to what uh, the apostle Paul shares when he recounts his salvation concerning what the Lord Jesus said he would have the apostle Paul do. Turn to Acts chapter 26. The Lord Jesus, uh, after saving Paul, says, here's what you're going to do, Paul. This is what you're going to do as you share the word of God. This is what's going to happen. This is the goal, what's going to happen. Acts 26, verse 16. But arise and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you. This is Jesus speaking to Paul. To point you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to which I will appear to you, delivering you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, in order that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. It's the truth that opens people's eyes, that they may then turn to Christ. The blinders are lifted. When one turns to Christ, the blinders are lifted. 
And so the truth of God gives mankind the opportunity to see their true state and the salvation that is in Jesus Christ and thus be delivered from darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, if you'll be willing to believe in Jesus Christ. We see this in Colossians 1.13, for he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You see, if you're in your sins still, you're in Satan's domain. But if you've been delivered through the forgiveness of sins in Jesus, you are a child of God. See how great a love that we should be called. And it is a higher family than our earthly family. It is a higher family. You know, we need to recognize that. Jesus made it really clear here. He's teaching this one person here at this point who came up and he's talked, he says, hey, they're out there. And he told him, these are my mothers, my brothers and sisters. Those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. So then Jesus, back in our passage, turn back to Matthew chapter 12. He says, for whoever does, verse 47, or verse 49, whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, verse 50, he is my brother, my sister, and my mother. He speaks of the spiritual relatives are those who continually, habitually do the will of his Father who is in heaven. What does that mean? What does that mean? Turn to Luke chapter 8, because we have a parallel statement concerning this, which helps us understand what does it mean to do the will of God? What does it mean? Luke chapter 8, verse 20. Luke chapter 8, verse 20. And it was reported to him, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wishing to see you. But he answered and said to them, my mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. There you go. If you want to identify a true believer versus one who is not, it is one who hears the word of God and then because of a real relationship with the living God does what God says. Hears it. And does it. You see, notice uh, uh, the Lord Jesus makes it clear that there are those who hear and there are those who hear and don't do it. Turn to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, verse uh, 18. And I remember a pastor sharing this with me at a, at a little Chinese church. And it was, uh, it was it's exactly right. You hear you go, this is true. This is true. A good tree, Matthew 7, 18, cannot produce bad fruit. And a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you'll know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who what? does the will of my Father who is in heaven. That's a true believer. Lots of Lord Lorders out there, but not many true believers doing the will of his Father in heaven. That's what it is. We have the same phrase here. We have the exact same phrase. And so then, Jesus makes it clear, these are my spiritual relatives, his disciples, who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now we know they weren't perfect, right? Look at the disciples in Scripture. But we know that they were saved because they did obey the Lord. 
they faltered and failed, but they heard it and they were they were convicted and they changed and they did his will. And then when the Spirit of God came, we saw a transformation in them, an amazing transformation. So he says here, those who do the will of my Father who in heaven, these are my spiritual my spiritual um descent my spiritual relatives you know we see also that passage not everyone who says to me lord lord will enter the kingdom of heaven but those who do the will of my father who is in heaven he's talking about continual habitual doing of god's will but what does that mean what does it mean god's will i mean we tend to think of god's will as a as a destination What's God's will for my life? It is, I'm going to do this, I'm going to go to this school, I'm going to do this and this and this. Now, yes, we want to seek God's will in those things and we pray about those things. But by and large, God's will in Scripture, more often than not, has to do with the character of God, his desire for us being manifest in us. You see, the term will means desire. What is God's desire? We find God's desire in his word, you see? And so if I'm doing and obeying his word, I'm doing what he wants me to do, his desire. We see that in the scriptures. And so then, very clearly, the will of God is found in the word of God. Uh, the apostle Paul tells the Thessalonians, this is the will of God, your sanctification. He talks about, about being separate from immorality. The will of God is for you to stop sinning and to be trusting and obeying, to, 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 to obey his word. And when you sin, you obey his word by confessing your sin and repenting. You see, those who love him, those who are his, are those who continually, habitually obey the word of God. They obey the word of God. Now we see that man's will and God's will are in opposition. Man's will and God's will are in opposition. You see, we're not to be foolish and, and not understand what the will of God is. We're to understand what the will of God is. Ephesians chapter 5. Don't be foolish, but understand what the will of God is. Then he goes on to say, don't get drunk with wine, but be filled by the Spirit. Allow the Spirit of God to control you. That is God's will. That the word of God through the through the Spirit of God, control your heart. Turn to First Peter chapter four. We see here that God's will is in contradiction to man's will. It is in, it is in, it is in comp- not competition, but in contradiction. First Peter chapter four. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased to sin. He's going to explain. He's not saying we're becoming sinless perfectionists. He says here, so as to live the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. Believers don't live for their own desires. They live for God's will. Now, not perfectly, but that's what identifies a true believer versus one who is not a believer. They live to, to follow and obey their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, their disciples, learning to obey and observe all that he has done and said. And that happens through the renewed mind when the word of God works in our heart. We are to not be conformed to this world, Romans 12, 2, but transformed through the renewing of the mind that we might prove what is good and acceptable. We might prove what the will of God is. I'm going to prove God's will when God's word is working in my heart. 
When God's word is convicting me not to uh, snap back, but to have a gentle response, that's proving his will in my actions. When God's will is convicting me not to worry, but to pray instead. You see, that's convicting. I'm, I'm then responding to his word. That's his will for me to pray instead. I can go on and on and on. And so it's from the renewed, yielded mind that becomes behavior that is consistent with the will of God. And that only happens in a true believer's life. It only happens in a true believer's life. So then, again, we saw back in Luke chapter 8 very clearly that those who obey the word of God. Take a look at that again. Luke chapter 8, verse 20. And it was reported to him, your, you and your, mothers, your, your, your mother and your brothers are standing outside to see you. But he answered and said to them, My mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and what? Do it. Do it. And did you know, at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord Jesus makes this very point. He makes this very point about those who build on the rock and those who build on the sand. The one who builds on the sand is one who hears but doesn't do. The one who builds on the rock is one who hears and does because they're changed. And that's the house that stands. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them may be compared to a wise man who built his house upon the rock. And the only way someone can act upon what he said is if you have a changed heart. Because you don't want to act upon, we don't want to in our own nature, apart from Christ, want to do what he says. It is contrary to our desires. And so when we have been changed by Jesus Christ, it is an evidence that we are saved when we obey what he has said with a changed heart. And so then, continual habitual obedience to the word of God is an evidence that one is saved. You know, in the book of John, in 1 John chapter 2, turn there, 1 John chapter 2. There are those who will say, hey, I know the Lord. I know Jesus. And John is going to say, hey, do you really? This is what's going to show you if you really do. 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. Here's a test you can know if you've come to know Jesus. 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. And by this, we know that we've come to know him. If we keep or observe, is what it means, his commandments. The one who says, I've come to know him. I've come to know Jesus, right? And does not keep his commandments is what? A liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has been truly perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who abides, says he abides in him ought to also walk in the same manner in which he walked. Now he's not talking about outward legalistic obedience like the Pharisees. He's talking about those who from a changed heart are obeying the word and the God of the word. You see? And we have this throughout. Even Jesus shares in John 14. Turn to John 14. He's going to say, you know, hey, I can tell you if you love me or not by what you do. Right? I mean, you can, you can think about that in a relationship, too. If you love someone in a relationship, you're going to uh, uh, interact in a way that is honoring towards them, right? You're going to see that. Uh, John 14, 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them, 
He is the one who loves me. Now, this is in the context later on. He'll say, apart from me, you can do nothing. This is obedience in the context of faith and abiding in Jesus. This is not outward following a list of stuff and saying, now I know I know Jesus because I do that. It is an inside changed heart that is abiding in Jesus and by faith obeying him. Okay, and He says here, he, it is he is, is loves me, and he who loves me shall be loved by my Father, and I will love him and disclose myself to him. This is John 14, 21. And then go down to 23. Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but my Father's who sent me. There's so many different things. Don't forsake a friend assembling one another. We need to love one another and serve one another. Uh, so many truths that people, pastors, preach the word. You don't preach the word. You don't love Jesus. I don't care how much you say you love Jesus. If you don't obey him in the highest calling there is, the charge for 2 Timothy 4.1, you don't love Jesus. John 15.12, this is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one, than, no one than this that one down, laid on his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. You're laying down your life for Jesus by obeying him rather than obeying your own will, right? You are my friends if you do what I commanded you. And so then we have the reality that there is a narrow gate and if you have trusted in Christ, it will be evidenced by believing in him. You see, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, Jesus says. The reality is that. And we even see that again. We see it all throughout the book of John, uh, that if we love him, we're going to observe his commandments. First John 5, we're going to obey his word. What about the book of James? What about the book of James? James makes this argument clear. Turn to James chapter 2. The argument that true faith works. It's not works. It's faith that works. A genuine faith in the Lord Jesus works. James chapter 2, verse 14. What use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith and he has no works? Can that faith save him? That's the key to interpreting this whole passage. It's about saving faith. Saving faith. He says, if a brother or sister is without clothing or need of daily food, and, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, and yet you don't give them what is necessary to their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works. I will show you and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you worthless, foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? You can say you believe in Jesus all day long, but if it isn't manifest in obedience to his word, which is going to be, which is going to be manifest in love for one another, and love for him, by the way, in obedience, then maybe you don't know the Lord. Maybe you don't know the Lord. Turn back to James chapter 1. He makes this point. There are those who hear and do, and there are those who hear, and they are deluded hearers. You know, if you were to say someone is delusional, that's a pretty strong statement. Someone who is deluded. 
Well, Jesus, through, uh, through James, this is his brother here, is going to share, inspired by the Spirit, that there are those who hear the word, but it doesn't affect them. And they're deluded because they think they're saved and they're not. And God is gracious to point that out, by the way. James chapter 1, verse 21. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted. Set sin aside and receive the word. That's a great paradigm, by the way. When you come to church, confess sin, receive the word. Confess sin, receive the word. Confess sin, receive the word. That's what you need to do. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in the mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides or remains by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man shall be blessed in what he does. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his own heart. This man's religion is worthless. There are doers who hear and do because they've been changed. And there are those <coughs> excuse me, who hear and they don't do because they're not saved. And so then the Lord Jesus gives a very simple statement of reality concerning a higher family. You see, even in the book of Romans, Paul says this, that uh, believers become obedient to the word of God. Romans chapter 6, 16 do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves to obedience, you are slaves to the one you obey? Either sin resulting in death or obedience resulting in righteousness. But thanks be to God, you Roman believers, that's what he's talking to, that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching which you were committed. You became obedient to the word of God. Thanks be to God for that. Now, I'm not saying we're perfect. We do sin and God gives a provision for sin. We should try to keep a clean conscience. Like Paul says, I always try to keep a clean conscience. We should be confessing sin. We should be growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. But the reality is if you continually habitually sin, you are not of God. That's just don't deceive yourself. Do not deceive yourself. Now let's take a look at some passages that show us the opposite. Look at Galatians chapter 5, verse 19. Galatians 5, 19. Galatians 5, 19. Now, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are, and he's going to talk about just the things that man does apart from God, okay? The deeds of the flesh, which are immorality, we know what that is, impurity, we know what that is, sensuality, we know what that is, idolatry, we know what that is, sorcery, all these things we know of, enmities, strife, just having a little battle, strife, uh, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. It's not even the complete list. Of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, uh, forewarned you that those who pr literally practice means do habitually. Same thing the word Jesus used. Those who do these things over and over again shall not inherit the kingdom of God. You see, if you haven't been saved, you're going to continue in your behavior now you may have put a spiritual veneer over it but the lord jesus sees the heart how about ephesians chapter 5 verse 5 ephesians 5 ephesians 5 5 for this you know with certainty that no 
immoral, impure person or covetous person who is an idolater has an inheritance of the kingdom of God and Christ. You know this, that people are identified by their sin, and if they haven't been changed by Jesus, they're not saved. They don't have an inheritance. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Always think of the, the mainline denominations. Come in, live the way you want, and Jesus loves you no matter what. You don't have to repent. That's what they say. Let no one deceive you. They're deceiving you. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Be saved from his wrath upon sin and be saved. And you will be changed and you will end up doing what he wants you to do. Not perfectly. You have a changed heart. Praise the Lord. One last passage. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Or do you not know the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Obviously, there's a lot of deception going out there that those who continue in their sin are just good with God. Not the truth. Not the truth. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate. That's pretty popular these days, by the way. Nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. And this is a wonderful statement. I love this. And such were some of you. And such were some of you. But you were washed. Uh, you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. Uh, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of God. We are all sinners by nature. And if you are willing to humble yourself and admit it and go to Jesus for salvation, you'll be washed and cleansed and justified. You see, we're all identified by our sin before. But some of you may be still in that mode. And you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God because sin is in the way. But God's a gracious God. Notice back in our passage, he says, for whoever does the will of God. It's a great statement. It's an, it's a, it's a, it's a, if you don't look closely, you don't see it is an, it is an opening from the Lord God to say, this is open to anyone. For whoever does the will of God. Remember the great, wonderful gospel uh, statements that we have from the Lord Jesus himself. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. He came to his own. Those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, the offers there, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe on his name. You see, he even uses the opportunity here to say to this gentleman, whoever does this, whoever, that's my spiritual relatives. They are the ones who are truly of God. So what are the implications? There are only two spiritual families, Satan's and, and God's. Uh, there's two destinies thus, hell and there is heaven. And your response to the word and the God of the word determines what family you are in and what eternal destiny you will experience. You're going to spend your eternity with your spiritual family, either with Christ and those who have been saved by Christ forever and ever, or you will spend your eternity in your sins in a place prepared for the devil and his angels. Scripture is very clear. It is appointed man once to die and then the judgment you see, Jesus made it clear that hell was not prepared for man. It was prepared for the devil and his angels. But if you reject God's offer of salvation, you will spend eternity in hell. There's all kinds of passages speak, that speak about judgment 
Uh, now, believers are going to be judged for their works in the body, good or bad. We have a few passages, Romans 10, 1 Corinthians 3, and 2 Corinthians 5, but that's not for sin. But if you reject Christ and you die in your sins, you will be judged for your sin. You see, the reality is the judge is standing right at the door. And they're going to give an account to the one who is ready to judge the living and the dead. First Peter 4. For by your words you shall be justified. By your words you shall be condemned. Jesus said, and by this, every careless word that men shall speak, they shall render account on the day of judgment. Matthew 12. Revelation 20. And I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, whose presence heaven and earth fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up its dead which were in them, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire you see the only way your name is in the book of life is if you overcome through jesus revelation chapter 3 and who is it that overcomes first john 5 those who believe in jesus christ hebrews chapter 10 if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire which will consume the adversaries it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. I believe you would be shocked if you could talk to anyone who is in Hades right now. And you can if you want to. You can listen to him. Go to Luke chapter 16 and listen to the rich man and what he says. He says that what was needed was repentance. What was repentance? You see? So then, God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world through the right through through Jesus having given proof by raising him from the dead the reality is there is judgment Jesus Christ is the judge of the living and the dead and so then there are only two spiritual families two destinies one eternal life with Jesus Christ uh, where there's no more tears no more sorrow no more pain uh, the old things have passed away the new things have come or there is eternal punishment for sin And so you're going to spend your eternity with the family that you choose to be in. I began to speak about how, you know, some wish they could choose their earthly families. We can't do that. But we can choose our heavenly family or our eternal family. Correct that, our eternal family. If you do nothing about your sin and you reject the the love of Christ and the beckoning for you to repent, then you will spend eternity with uh, with the devil and his angels in, in hell paying for your sin. But if you humble yourself, believe that you're a sinner in need of salvation, cry out to Jesus Christ, Lord, save me. He'll save you. And you'll be delivered from darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. And you'll spend eternity in glory with Jesus Christ. So my question is, who are your brothers and sisters? few other applications Um, we love our earthly families and we pray for them especially those who aren't saved and we trust god till the moment that they expire that they have an opportunity to be saved and we pray for them but we recognize this family that we have in christ is a higher family and there's a there's a more deeper 
relationship in Christ than our earthly families. And yet we pray for our earthly families to be saved too. So let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for the privilege that we have to be called children of God because of your son Jesus who died for us. And I pray for anyone here who is not of your family. You know it, and they probably know it too. They've probably been convicted of it. I pray that they would understand their terrible place they're in right now and the terrible danger that they face for eternity, that they would turn in, in fear and trembling. Lord Jesus, save me from my sins. I believe you died for my sins and you rose from the dead. Save me. And we know that whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And Lord, for those of us who are saved, may we remember who our mother and our brother and our sisters truly are. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.